TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Noam Chomsky, War in Ukraine is an Insane Experiment. On May 13, 2022, the Ukrainian exile, Vlad Yachenko, interviewed the linguist, philosopher, historian, and analyst of U.S. foreign policy, Professor Noam Chomsky. Vlad Yachenko studied law, modern history, and literature, and holds degrees from Munich and Columbia University, New York. Here are excerpts from their conversation. Today, our guest is Professor Chomsky. He is one of the most prominent critics of US foreign policy. He is a very famous scholar, one of the most quoted in the last decades. Millions of people follow his work and agree with him. Millions of people follow his work and disagree with him. But no one in the world would say that Professor Chomsky is not an original thinker. Now the topic is Ukraine versus Russia, the war. And in the conversation prior to this interview, uh, Mr. Chomsky intrigued me with his response. I wanted to ask him, should we give Ukraine more heavy weapons as United States, as the European Union? And he told me, Vlad, this is a fine question, but not the most important question. So Professor Chomsky, my question to you, of course, is what is the most important question with regards to the Ukrainian-Russian war? The most important question is how to end it. It's a horrible criminal aggression causing enormous atrocities, great dangers, even up to nuclear war. So the main question is how to put it to an end. Well, there are two ways. One way is through a diplomatic settlement. The second way is let them fight it out and we'll see what happens. Horrible experiment. So if possible, we would like to pursue a diplomatic settlement and the agony and the dangers. Regrettably, there is almost no discussion of a diplomatic settlement. Almost the entire discourse in the matter is how to pursue the war, okay, how to carry out the grotesque experiment, where we might as well understand what the experiment is. Experiment is see whether Putin will slink away quietly in defeat, abandoning all hope, abandoning his life and everything else, one possibility. Other possibility is that if his back is to the wall, he'll use the weapons, which of course he has, to devastate Ukraine and set the stage for a larger war. That's the experiment. I'm not in favor of that experiment. I think it's grotesque. So I think we should change policy radically. And instead of undermining the possibility of a diplomatic settlement, as we are doing, we should see, explore the possibilities for it. Now, a diplomatic settlement by definition, means that both sides accept it. There has to be something for each side. Actually, Germany has experience with refusal to accept the diplomatic settlement after World War I. The victors refused to accept the diplomatic settlement 
I don't have to run through what happened, but one consequence was Hitler, okay? The basic contours of a diplomatic settlement have been reasonably clear uh, for a long time. In fact, if they had been pursued, there probably wouldn't have been an invasion. The basic contours are neutralization of Ukraine, no membership in NATO, that's been a Russian red line for 30 years, and high-level U.S. diplomats, starting with George Kennan and many others, have warned the U.S. government that refusal to take this seriously is reckless, provocative, and dangerous. They've ignored it. Uh, they've insisted on integrating Ukraine within the NATO command structure. This is quite open, incidentally. You can read it by Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, describing it with pride. It's official U.S. stand, reiterated again last fall, September and November, before the invasion. It's certainly a factor in the invasion, how much of a factor we can debate. So one element of a settlement is neutralization of Ukraine uh, no NATO membership, a status like Austria or Mexico for that matter. A second element is putting off the discussion of Crimea to a later time till this conflict ends. Third element is some kind of agreement roughly along the lines of Minsk II for the Donbass region which optimally would mean federalization of Ukraine with a degree of autonomy for the Donbass region, something like uh, Switzerland or Belgium. Not optimal, but better than fighting. Actually, all of this has been proposed by Zelensky as recent as late March. It's rejected by the United States, uh, and that means NATO the opportunities for achieving this, an outcome like this, of course, diminish the longer the war goes on. But those are the main outlines, and there's still some possibility. Continue the war, continue the experiment, they'll decline. That's where we stand. Now, I say again, if you look at the discourse on the topic, this is barely mentioned. The entire discourse is, how can we fight the war better? How can we carry out the experiment and see if we can push Putin to the wall and guess that he won't use the weapons that he has to devastate Ukraine and set the basis for nuclear war? It's an insane experiment. I have a question. I totally share your view that uh, people talk about weapons, but not about negotiations. And I'm wondering, why is the second option, the negotiation option, not mentioned? It's partly the media. More generally, it's the intellectual classes, the political class. And uh, fundamentally, it's government policy. So take official government policy stated in state decisions last September, last November, they're literally not 
reported in the United States. Uh, the State Department officially conceded, I'm virtually quoting, that Russian security concerns were not considered by the United States in the build up to the invasion. I think that may have received maybe one sentence in US media. It's rather significant. Now, when we turn to weapons, if we decide to conduct the experiment, which I don't think we should do, but if we do, then comes the question of weapons. And here there's another question that has to be raised. Perfectly legitimate to provide weapons to a country that's defending itself from aggression. Yes, that's legitimate. With a proviso that you do not send weapons which will escalate the crisis and increase the threat to the country that is being attacked. You don't want to increase the threat to them. So you have to consider the kinds of weapons you're sending. You don't want to send the kinds of weapons that will lead to possibly to nuclear war. So one of the officials of the British Ministry of Defense proposed that Ukraine should start bombing Russia and we should provide weapons so they can bomb Russia. What is he proposing? He's proposing, let's get into a terminal war in which we all get wiped out. That's what it means. If you stop to think for 30 seconds, you start bombing Russia, you start on an escalatory ladder, which any strategic analyst can explain if you can't figure it out. There's calls for a no-fly zone. Fortunately, the Pentagon, which is the one peacekeeping element in the US government, the Pentagon has vetoed it for a simple reason. You establish a no-fly zone, sounds very heroic. First thing you have to do is eliminate Russian anti-aircraft systems. Otherwise, you can't have a no-fly zone. Where are those anti-aircraft systems? In Russia. So the first thing you have to do is NATO has to bomb Russia. Well, what does that mean? Does it take a genius to figure it out? Apparently too much of a genius for the media and Congress. Luckily, we have the Pentagon who can figure it out. How long that'll last, I don't know. Take the recent bill that passed Congress. It's called the Lend-Lease Act. It's calling for arms to Ukraine. Lend-Lease Act. What was Lend-Lease? Lend-Lease was a huge program, massive program, which essentially was intended to bring the US into the war in Europe, but it also created a world war by bringing together the two wars that were taking place in Europe and Japan and led to a world war. Is that what we want in today's world? in the circumstances of today. How about stopping to think before just screaming hysterically and uh, posturing nobly uh, with heroic gestures?
some people and some commentators talk about the grand chess game between the superpowers of the world. And some uh, officials from the US also told us uh, publicly that one of the goals of the war in Ukraine is actually to weaken Russia long term. And some people, an ambassador, I think, has spoken about fighting this war until the last Ukrainian. I would really like to know what is the experiment about this war? Who is conducting the experiment? And what are the special interests behind this experiment? Official US policy, I stress official, and that means NATO goes along, is to fight the war to weaken Russia. What happens to Ukrainians is incidental. Fight the war to weaken Russia. And in fact, the model that is being used, sometimes quite explicitly, is the model of Afghanistan. Worth looking at that model. Actually, it's a very detailed study of the end of the war in Afghanistan, which is worth reading by Diego Cordovez, the UN ambassador who negotiated the peace, and Zelig Harrison, who's one of the leading US experts on the region. What they point out is that the war was ended by diplomacy. The Russian army was quite stable, had no problems holding their territory. Uh, the US throughout tried to block diplomacy because it wanted to weaken Russia, didn't care what happened to the Afghans. But despite US impediments to diplomacy, the UN was able to carry out a serious diplomatic process, which did lead to Russian withdrawal. That's Afghanistan. And in fact, the US is proud of having done that. Read Spigniew Brzezinski, National Security Advisor for Carter. He takes pride in wow. having drawn Russia into an Afghan trap. He convinced President Carter, he says, to send arms to opposition forces that were trying to overthrow the Russian-supported government. And he assumed that that would draw Russian into what he calls an Afghan trap, bring them their Vietnam, as he put it, reflecting the colossal in ignorance of Indochina that was the hallmark of US policy for decades. Whatever that meant in his confused mind, he wanted to draw Russia into an Afghan trap. He was asked years later, do you think it was worth it given what happened to Afghans? He simply ridiculed that. So what does it matter if there's some agitated Muslims, his phrase? also a million cadavers, but don't worry about that. We weakened Russia, okay? Well, that's the model that is being explicitly used now. Let's hamper negotiations, weaken the Russians, and if the Ukrainians uh, suffer, who cares? They don't say those words, but that's what it clearly amounts to. NATO's going along calling military aid Lend-Lease, is saying, okay, let's move on to a world war if necessary. 
Is that what we want? There is total hysteria about this in the United States and Europe. There are a few exceptions, but they're marginalized. In fact, just about every specialist on the topic is marginalized because the government and the media don't like what they're saying. I should say that there's talk now in the great game about isolating Russia. Those who are talking about isolating Russia might have a look at the sanctions map. Take a look at the map of the countries that are imposing sanctions. It's quite revealing. Europe, the English speaking countries, and Japan, the country that South African apartheid called honorary whites. That's it. The rest of the world is condemning the invasion, deplorable, but saying, what's new? That's what you've been doing to us forever. So yes, it's deplorable, but we're not going to join you. Uh, what's happening is the isolation of Europe and the United States. China's not going along. India's not. Indonesia isn't. Countries of Africa aren't. Of Asia. What we're doing in the great game is creating a Russia-China alliance supported by India and other countries of Asia. Russia is a declining kleptocracy, but it has enormous resources, mineral, food, other resources. So China will be happy to absorb Russia as a huge supplier of uh, oil, minerals, and so on, which the West will be deprived of, not just oil, lithium, uh, steel, nickel, and so on. Russia has them in abundance. Russia and Ukraine are the major food suppliers of the world. What we are doing by prolonging the war and rejecting negotiations is not only killing lots of Ukrainians, but also imposing massive starvation over much of the world. Millions of people are facing starvation, millions, imminent starvation because of prolongation of the war. Well, more agitated Muslims, who cares about them, to borrow Brzezinski's term. Uh, one question um, and now from the perspective of the Ukrainian people, um, I did a little research and what we both have in common, Mr. Chomsky, is that my parents and your parents are actually uh, or were from the Soviet Union. My position as a person being born in Ukraine, I came to Germany when I was 10. When I observed the conflict and the ties, the family ties I have there, it is not only that um, United States wants Ukrainians to fight against Russia and to weaken Russia, but it also the Ukrainians that want to defend themselves against the aggressor, even in Russian speaking uh, cities, for instance, Kharkiv in the northeast or um, in the in the south or uh, in the west, 
people from Ukraine actually want the Russians get out. So what do you say if we take an analysis level of Ukrainians? From their perspective, I think the war, war is not only legitimate as a self-defense, Article 51 of UN Charter, but simply a, necess a necessity to get rid of the invasion. And from their Ukrainian perspective, that might be not an experiment that US is conducting, but actually the weapons might be crucial for winning the war, and if winning the war is not possible, to at least gain a, an advantage or to have a stalemate on a military level to get a negotiation going on where Russia might get be thrown back uh, to the level before the war. So how do you assess the situation from the Ukrainian people's perspective? And are weapons not the really crucial question from the Ukrainian point of view? There's virtually 100% agreement in the world that the war is criminal aggression and that Ukrainians have a perfect right to defend themselves. That's not even an issue. The question is, what do we do to facilitate a solution to the problem? Now, it's perfectly nice to say, yes, the Ukrainians should fight until the Russians are defeated. Okay. It's understandable that Ukrainians should feel that way. What does it mean? Is Russia going to be defeated? Well, that's the experiment. Let's carry out an experiment to see if Putin will slink away quietly in defeat, total defeat, disaster for him, of course, but maybe he'll do it. The other possibility is that he will use the weapons which he has not used, and which he has available, and which we all know he has available to devastate Ukraine. So we are asking, do we want to carry out that experiment? Well, I don't think so. I think we should first explore the possibility of a diplomatic settlement, the kind that was refused by the great powers at Versailles. I think we should carry out that diplomatic experiment instead of impeding it. When the United States announces officially that it is integrating Ukraine into the NATO military command and that it refuses to consider any Russian security concerns this is before the right before the invasion. It is telling Russia, no negotiations, no diplomacy. Do your worst. That's what NATO and the United States were telling Russia and continue to tell Russia. When the policy is weaken Russia, that's our goal. It's telling Russia, no diplomacy. Use whatever military force you want to. You mentioned the phrase, fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. Go back and look at the Afghan model that is being discussed. The book that I mentioned, which is the authoritative study, uses the same phrase. It says, the United States was fighting Russia to the last Afghan. That was US policy. And notice that official position is to be proud of it. 
as Brzezinski said, so there's a few agitated Muslims, who cares? We had to fight Russia to the last Afghan. That's the model that's being proposed, okay? Fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. You can perfectly well understand the feeling of Ukrainians. If I were in their shoes, I'd feel the same way. Let's do anything possible to drive out the Russian aggressors. But we are in a position where we have to decide on our policy. Will our policy be to seek for the first time a diplomatic settlement, which is still possible, or will our policy be to fight Russia to the last Ukrainian? That's the question we have to ask. And uh, you sent me before the interview an interesting Word document where you mentioned a sentence that, to be honest, I never thought of. And this is a comparison between an invasion of the US in Iraq and the invasion of Russia in Ukraine. And the sentence really, really stuck with me. You wrote that the invasion, the US invasion in Iraq was totally unprovoked while the invasion of Russia in Ukraine was totally provoked. And this mind-blowing sentence, maybe you could explain that to our listeners. It's a rule now in uh, the Western political class that when you refer to the invasion of Ukraine, you call it the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Out of curiosity, I did a Google search. Uh, 30 seconds, you get two and a half million hits for the phrase unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. I then made the obvious experiment. Let's look at the phrase unprovoked invasion of Iraq. About 10,000, all of them from marginal people who opposed the invasion. I don't think you could find a single case of the phrase unprovoked invasion of Iraq by anyone anywhere near the mainstream. So it's basically two and a half million to zero. Well, that's one point. Then comes the second point, which you mentioned. The invasion of Iraq was totally unprovoked. There wasn't a hint of provocation, pure aggression, no justification, none. The invasion of Ukraine was a criminal act, but it was definitely provoked. I just gave some of the evidence, there's plenty more. Okay. So the facts are exactly the opposite of what is overwhelmingly stated. It's a very striking example of, I wouldn't even call it manufactured consent. It's self-delusion in the interests of a political project, from the government, to the media, to the political class, near uniformity on uh, insisting upon the opposite of what clearly happened. That's a pretty impressive case of uh, discipline. There's a name for that. Orwell gave a name for it. He called it doublethink the capacity to have two contradictory ideas in mind and to believe both of them. The kind of thing that could happen in 
super totalitarianism. Well, we're living with it ourselves right now. We might ask whether that tells us something about ourselves. We could also ask, what does it mean that the entire discourse, virtually without discussion, is about how to fight the war, not exploring a way to bring it to an end without further tragedy. That was Professor Noam Chomsky, the linguist, philosopher, historian, and analyst of U.S. foreign policy, with his urgent advice on how to bring the war in Ukraine to an end. He was interviewed by Vlad Yachenko. He was born in Ukraine and studied in Munich and at Columbia University, New York. You can find the full 48-minute interview on YouTube under the title Noam Chomsky, War in Ukraine is an Insane Experiment by the U.S. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>